morning. My name is Andy. I'm an elder here at North Shore Church, and I have the privilege of reading scripture this morning and prayer. It's on. Is the microphone working now? Okay, thank you. Um, really glad to see all of you here this morning. <laughs> it is really nice to see everyone here worshiping our God. This morning we'll be reading from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 18 through the end, 29, I believe. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house, that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you and we honor you. We honor your most holy and your precious name. Your love is the reason that we seek you out. If you were a God of our making, a God that acted as we do, we would be without hope. But you are who you are. As you said when you asked, when we were asked what your name was, you said, I am who I am meaning I exist as I will. You are not prone to do the failings that we have. Sin is how you describe our repeated failures. God, and you have given us a way out. You have redeemed us. Loving God, how can we even begin to give you thanks for all of the sacrifices and the sacrifice of your son? We confess our sins to you and we ask for them 
forgiveness in the name of your son, Jesus. God, and with this redemption comes relationship. And then you ask that we would not only give you the praise and the honor that you so greatly deserve, but you also ask that we would pray to you and we would make requests that you might grant them to us. What a God we serve and love. So I pray today for this body of believers gathered here today, Lord. Grant us good health and clear minds. And God, we by name ask for your healing hand on Mel and Brenda Levin, on Dan Zwicker, and on Mary Jean Golicker. Lord, I also pray for your guiding hand to be on this elected government that we have. Lord, open their hearts to see truth. Help them to lead honorably. Give them courage to stand against evil and the devil's plans of destruction. Lord God, help all of your people to desire revival, to let your Holy Spirit guide us into your will. So I ask for the fresh and strong movement of the Spirit in each of our hearts. I pray, Lord, that as the Spirit moves in us, we act. Give us the courage to speak your words, words of love, hope, and compassion. Lord, help us to make our hearts right in your presence, that we can shine like a beacon of love and hope in this confused and darkened world. Lord, please do this so that your name would be honored and for your glory. Lord, we ask that you would also be with Duncan now as he brings your word. Strengthen him and enlighten him. Care for him as he does your work. Let his words be yours so that we can know you, our God, better. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Well, as you would have guessed, we continue this week to study the life and reign of King David, and we're in the book of 2 Samuel. Last week, we saw what was the most important section of Scripture in First and Second Samuel, and frankly, one of the most important Scriptures in all of the Old Testament. This is because in this chapter, which was read last week, not what you heard today, the author reveals the covenant that God made with David. We saw that the covenant is a special relationship, and it's always initiated, it's established by God between a person or a nation, and this relationship is legally binding. It has a legal, legally binding element to it. Now, in this covenant with David, there isn't anything legally binding on David. There's no condition that he needs to meet in order to receive the blessings of the covenant. He's going to receive the the promised blessings, irrespective of his performance, and later on his sin with Bathsheba proves that if that doesn't disqualify you, nothing will. So he receives this irrespective. But God does legally bind himself to this covenant. He makes some binding promises that we looked at last week to David. First, he promises that he's going to give David a son, who we know to be Solomon. And this son, God says, he's the one that's going to build the Jerusalem temple. But God also promises that he's going to give something to David that would be absolutely unique to David. God not only promises to give him a house or a dynasty, is what that word house means, of kings to follow after him, but this dynasty is going to be like no other dynasty before or after, in that this dynasty is going to last for all eternity. 
Although David could not have known this, God was speaking about the dynastic rule of David's ultimate son, Jesus Christ. That's why they called him the son of David, because he was descended from David. And this is the king that's going to have this kingdom forever and fulfill the covenant with David. The section of scripture that Andy read earlier is how David responds to all of these glorious promises. What is, what is a man of God's response to these kind of unbelievably gracious promises? It's safe to say that that these promises take David utterly, completely by surprise. There's no way he could have anticipated or expected, especially this promise of an eternal dynasty coming from his family line. It would never have entered his mind to ask for such a blessing because David knew that all dynasties come to an end. In England, in our own time, historians tell us that there have been 10 separate royal dynasties over the past 1,000 years. In Egypt, which would have been the dynasty that David would have been familiar with, after 2,000 years of dynastic rule, they went through 21 separate dynastic family lines by the time David got here. Dynasties begin, dynasties end. So David has no categories to even help him to think about a family line that's going to reign for all eternity. That couldn't have even entered his mind. So how does a man of God respond to God when he hears these unprecedented promises of God's grace? And the answer is, he prays. And that's what you just heard, this prayer in verses 18 to 29. It divides into three sections. Each one of the sections reveal different aspects of David's response to all these promises. The first aspect of David's response to this inconceivable grace of God is David responds with awestruck humility. Humility is one of the most discussed character traits in the Bible, and we see a powerful expression of it here in David. David's humility is characterized by two qualities. First, David's humility is marked by a sense of his utter unworthiness. Verses 18 and 19, they recount what David does when he first hears these promises. Then David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? O Lord God, and, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Now this detail about David's body position, that he comes in and he sits before God, we know is important because the, the the customary posture for praying was always either standing or kneeling. Now, no explanation is given as to why he goes in and he just plops himself down. We don't know. It could be that he was so completely overwhelmed by God's promises that he just didn't have the strength to stand or kneel. We don't know. But his words indicate that kind of profound level of awe that would take your energy away. David responds to God's grace the way any of us would respond if something so good and so wonderful happened to us that it never occurred to us even to fantasize or to daydream about those things happening. For instance, if you interview for a mid-level management position and you are hired to be the CEO of the company, if someone of the opposite sex who for years you've absolutely been smitten by from afar, but you think they don't even know you're alive if they propose marriage to you. 
if some relative you never even knew dies and makes you the sole beneficiary of their multi-million dollar estate. When those kinds of utterly unimaginable and completely undeserved kinds of things happen to you and you understand that this gift comes to you from God, there's really only one appropriate response and that is to say with David, who am I that you would give this to me? You say that because you know that you could in a million years have never done anything to deserve this overwhelming expression of God's goodness to you. Specifically, David is humbled by the fact that God has brought him thus far. Now remember, we meet David in 1 Samuel, and where is he when we meet him? He's a shepherd boy, a teenage shepherd boy, and he's out in the field watching his father's sheep a father who nobody knew about. This was not a famous family. There was nothing of note here. Do you think that that teenage shepherd boy ever dared to even entertain the notion that he was going to be the next king over Israel after Saul? Could he have ever, even in his wildest imaginations, thought that he was going to be the head of an everlasting dynasty. It's absurd to think that he would have thought that. Notice that although this is far too big a thing for David, and David is obviously very well aware of it, he's still quick to clarify, but even though this is so huge for me, this amazing thing, it's nothing for you. That's why he says in verse 19, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. So he is so worshipful here. Another expression of David's sense of unworthiness is in verse 21. He says, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Again, David acknowledges that these promises come by pure grace. He would be utterly repulsed by the suggestion that he had done anything to deserve any of this. Closely related to his humility is a second response to these promises in verse 20 where David says, and what more can David say to you? A second quality that marks David's humility is David responds in stunned speechlessness or stunned silence. There are times in your life when you are reduced to silence. Something so awful, or maybe something in this case so wonderful happens to you that you could scrape the Milky Way trying to find the right words to express what you feel, and you can't do it because some joys are inexpressible. When a first-time mother gives birth and she holds that child for the first time, she doesn't launch into a lecture on the wonders of childbirth. No, she's reduced to tears. And maybe if she says anything, it's one-syllable expressions of utter joy and wonder. So David sits before God, humbled by God's grace, and he's in stunned silence. The second section of the prayer begins in verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. A second aspect of David's response to God's amazing grace is David responds with wonder and praise to God. David doesn't remain speechless indefinitely. Eventually, his humility reveals itself in a joyful celebration of the God who has so richly blessed him through these promises. David specifically mentions two things. He says, David, you are God, and he, God, you are, you are great, and God, you are unique. 
That's what he means when he says, there is no God beside you. Now, if you've read anything in the Bible, you know that that particular praise of God is all over the Bible. The praise for God's uniqueness is, is very common. This is because one of the best ways that you can express your appreciation to someone is to compare them favorably with someone else. If someone is a good quarterback and you start talking to them and comparing them to Brett Favre or whoever your favorite quarterback is, that's really a powerful way to encourage somebody, isn't it? Because you're saying you're in this class of greatness. You're like this person. It really does when you can compare someone to someone else. But when you come to God, there is no one you can compare to God because God transcends all comparison. He exists in a class by himself. He stands in the solitude of himself. No one is like him. He's absolutely, utterly incomparable. So if you're lost in wonder and praise for God, eventually words of his greatness and words of his uniqueness spill over your lips. In verse 23, David here seems to change the focus of his prayer. He prays, and who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before them whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. It's really important to David. He uses that phrase, your people. He's just amazed by the fact that God made Israel his. He uses it eight times in two verses. This is just blown away. But why? Why would he shift the focus to Israel here? Well, there's a couple reasons. First of all, when you're talking about an eternal reign, David lived in Israel. And so he's thinking about national Israel. That's where this reign has to be. That's where he plugs that in. But even more, David has just praised God for his greatness and his uniqueness. And exhibit A, testifying to God's uniqueness, is how he responded, how he treated to his chosen covenant people, Israel. Notice that when David praises God for Israel, it's very clear that David is not impressed about Israel. He's impressed with God. He knows as well as anyone the truth of Deuteronomy chapter 9 about the people of Israel. God says to Moses before entering the promised land, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked me the Lord your God, to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been a rebellious against the Lord. Okay, so David is not bragging on Israel. He knows this truth all too well. He's bragging on God's work in redeeming Israel. The two great works of God in human history are creation and redemption. First, God creates the world, and then when Adam and Eve drug it into sin, he begins his work to redeem it, to free it from the enslavement to sin and Satan. And a crucial step in redemption, the redemption of humanity, was to choose a people, the Jews, through whom he would bless the earth by doing his redemptive work through them, through specifically Jesus, who was born a Jew. So when David brings into his prayer these truths about God redeeming Israel from the slavery of Egypt, 
He's citing an example of God's greatness and God's uniqueness. The fact that God alone would treat these people this way. God alone could have defeated an invincible Egypt. God alone would redeem his people who had been so rebellious against him. God alone would have been brought into a relationship with this unimpressive stiff-necked group of people. No other God would defeat seven nations stronger than Israel, evacuate the promised land to give his people their home. So David changes his focus to Israel. It really wasn't a change of focus. He's just singing praise to God's greatness and uniqueness because of his wondrous work among his people. A third and a final aspect of David's response to God's amazing grace is David responds with bold praying. 25. And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. David here models something that's very important about praying biblically. And there's an irony here, because the irony is he, he does model something important about praying, but he does that in ways that some professed believers would say, this is foolish and totally unnecessary for David to pray this way. What I mean by that is David prays for God to do something that he is already predestined will happen. That's what he's doing. Many in the church wonder, if God predestines people to be saved, why even pray for lost people? One theologian says, that's like asking if God predestines a tight end to receive a pass, why would the quarterback throw it? We pray for the salvation of lost people because that is how God chooses to save lost people. The reason David is so overjoyed is because God has predestined that his royal line will never end. It's going to happen. It's an eternal, unchangeable decree of God. And this is precisely why God prays, would you do this? David prays to God, God, do this. He does this in verse 25 when he asks God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house as you have spoken. He does it again in verse 27 when he explicitly says that in response to God's promise, therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. So the promise to David about his eternal dynasty doesn't just humble him into unspeakable gratitude, it emboldens him to generate these huge prayers. Again, the reason that David prays as he does is not in spite of the promises of God, it's because of the promises. One of the truths that Jesus intends to ignite and embolden our prayers for him to save many lost people in this area is that, as he said to a discouraged Paul in Corinth, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Notice the wording there. Jesus does not tell Paul, keep speaking because many in this city will become Christians. That is not what he says. He tells Paul that the reason he should not give up his preaching is because he has many people in the city. Though they're not yet saved, they are nonetheless, at this present time, they're my people. 
God emboldens Paul to keep evangelizing through this promise that many of his chosen saints live in Corinth and that they need to hear the gospel. Likewise, in our area, in this area, this should be at least part of the ground of our prayers for people who don't know Jesus here. The fact that God has his people in this area could embolden our prayers for the lost. It should be true that the most biblical, most confident, and the most bold prayers we ever pray are those prayers made in response to the promises of God. The old saying, pray the promises, is still true. If you're battling a particularly stubborn sin, pray the promises. Pray, pray prayers like this. Father, you have promised you have promised me that in Christ I am dead to the power of sin. Therefore, God, cause me to offer my members to you as instruments of righteousness because I'm dead to the power of sin. Or God, thank you, Jesus, that you say I am a new creation. That's your promise to me. Now cause me to believe that and live like a new creation. Or Father, cause me to work out my salvation in fear and trembling because you say, you promise that you are at work within me both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Or God, you say, that your word never returns void but always accomplishes that which you purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which you sent it. So Father, ignite your word to work powerfully today as I read your Bible. All of those prayers are prayers rooted in the promises. Now that we've looked at this prayer for just a moment, what are some application points? I find one main one and that is First and foremost, look at David. We are foremost worshipers. So first and foremost, be a worshiper of God. The most important truths for spiritual health are always the most basic. God puts all of his most important truths on the lower shelf so everybody can reach them. In any sport, you have to learn the fundamentals if you're to excel. You can't go around that step. You have to learn the fundamentals in any sport. And our spiritual lives are no different. So what is to be our fundamental, most basic, most foundational way of relating to God? And the answer from the scripture is, we're worshipers. We're worshipers before we're sons. We're worshipers before we're servants. We're worshipers before anything. Let me give you just two ways that the Bible teaches us that we could find 50. One way is to look at how so much of the scripture is written. For instance, in the book of Romans, that's Paul's most exhaustive look at the gospel. I mean, he spends 11 chapters carefully, methodically teaching the truths of the gospel. What is the gospel? What does it do for me? And how should it impact me? He spends 11 chapters talking about that. He does no application in the first 11 chapters. It's basically all teaching about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel as the power of God for salvation to all who believe. That's what it is. But in chapter 12, he immediately turns that corner. And it's as if somebody is standing over his shoulder as he's finishing up chapter 11 and says, So what, Paul? What does that mean to me? And Paul begins to tell how we're to respond to God's grace in the gospel. And listen to what he says in chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Therefore, in light of the mercies of God, which is the first 11 chapters of Romans, therefore, because of the gospel, because of all that that is, 
present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he's saying, in light of the grace of God in the gospel and all that God has done for you, Paul uses the language of temple worship, living sacrifice. When he commands us to offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices of worship to him. At the most basic level, Christians are worshipers of God. It's no accident that the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart, that that man is the preeminent worshiper in the Bible. David is the one who devised all aspects of temple worship all the way down to designing the musical instruments that were to be used. David is the preeminent worshiper of the Bible because the most impassioned worship found in the Bible is the book of Psalms, and he wrote half of them. Okay? Another way we see the centrality of worship for the believers and to be a worshiper is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 about what characterizes believers who are under the control of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. That's what he says in chapter 5 verse 18. He says, don't be drunk with wine, which is debauchery or dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, don't be under the control of alcohol. Be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does a person look like that is under the influence, that is under the control of the Holy Spirit? Well, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you're filled with the Spirit, if you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, worship to God will pour out of your mouth and out of your heart like living water. Three of the four are worship, right? Three of the four of these are worship. You're going to worship first, Paul says, in the presence of the church with psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. Does your love for God and gratitude for Jesus ever overflow in praise? to other believers. That's part of what it is to be filled with the Spirit. That will happen when the influence of the Holy Spirit is preeminent in your life. But the Spirit also moves in worship when it's just us alone with God, making melody to the Lord with our heart. Okay? Is your heart regularly bubbling over in private praise and worship to God? That's what the Holy Spirit does in a Spirit-filled believer. Finally, when the Holy Spirit is strongly influencing your life, you're going to be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that spirit of continual gratitude describe your fundamental disposition toward God? That's what the Spirit of God does in a person. So often we miss the forest for the trees in what we make our focus on as believers. We get so worked up over things that are secondary. For many believers, if you were to say, write down your three biggest spiritual roadblocks that you face, it would be something like sexual lust or sexual sin. Yeah, if I could stop that, I'd be okay. Others would say, if I could just discipline myself to spend time with God and pray, or if I just applied half of what I know, I'd be a pretty dynamic Christian. Now, all of those things are important. They're very important. But if those things are the main issues, the main burdens that capture your heart in your walk with God, you've put the cart ahead of the horse. 
Our spiritual health is most powerfully seen in the answer to this question. Am I fundamentally a worshiper of God? Do I love God? Do I overflow with gratitude to God? What did Jesus say is the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. We place so much emphasis on believing and being a believer. Sometimes we forget the reason we believe is so we can love. And if we're not loving God, we're failing at the most important. We're failing. We're sinning against him at the great commandment. Jesus is to be our treasure. We're to believe. We're to receive. But he's our treasure. Am I fundamentally a worship? If I am controlled by the Holy Spirit, that's going to be the core of who I am. If that's not the core of who we are, our biggest problem is not lust or infrequent quiet times. And as we see in David's prayer, the best way to generate love for God is to spend time pondering God's grace and love for you in Jesus Christ. As we've seen before in 1 John chapter 4, listen to this, we love because he first loved us. If you don't have a deposit, if you don't have a, a surety of God's love for you and, and how important that is and how vast it is, you're not going to love God in return because our love for God is always a love that's in response to his love first. What triggers love for Jesus in our hearts is by God's grace to have a heartfelt conviction of God's love for you in what Jesus has done for you. Just as David was moved to tremendous love and praise to God by the gracious promises of God and what they did for him, so also we love and worship God in response to how well we've internalized God's love for us. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation for us. The fact that Jesus bore the wrath of God that I deserve. John, the apostle of love, says, that's love. Right there. And when you get that in here, you're going to love God back. Not here. Here. You're going to love God back. And all these things we've seen about David and all these things that the Holy Spirit does, they're going to be real to you. The big problem for many, many believers is they've never really believed that God loves them. In their head, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in their heart, they've internalized that. Many believers, they just don't believe God loves them the way we do. And we have far more evidence of God's love for us than David did for him. We have far more to be thankful for than David. Here are four ways that believers have more to be thankful for than David and all of God's Old Testament people. First, we've seen the full extent of God's love for us. We've seen the full extent of God's love for us. David knew that God was willing to sacrifice thousands of goats and lambs and bulls for the sins of his people. The redemption out of Egypt came at the cost of the lives of countless Passover lambs whose blood was shed. But we know something that David could not in a million years have anticipated. We know what God himself would give and that God gave himself. He gave his son to prove his love for us. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
we know immeasurably more how much God values his people because unlike David, we've seen the full measure of what God is willing to pay to purchase us out of sin. If that truth, as it makes its way further down into your hearts, doesn't trigger a profound sense of our unworthiness before God, then we haven't experienced it. Because you cannot honestly think about God giving his son for a rebel and not feel unworthy. You, just, it just doesn't, you can't not do that. If you're not, if you're not feeling unworthy, you haven't got it. Second, David was operating under the old covenant of the law, but we're under the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And the promises that we have are immensely superior than the one that David had. Promises like Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah says, This new covenant will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Many people who aren't Christians, they look at Christians and they're living very differently, and their, their desires seem to be different, and they're happy in Jesus, or all these things, and they say, I don't want to be a Christian because that's not who I am. Well, of course you're not. You have to have a new heart, which is what the new covenant gives you. So you come to God in faith, say, I just know I'm a sinner, I know I need forgiveness. I trust in you. When you do that, God gives you a new heart, and he changes your desires. He changes your dispositions. We've, third, been liberated from a much more powerful enemy. We weren't liberated from uh, enslaving Egyptian rulers. We've been liberated from Satan, the author of evil. Okay? The bondage the Jews experienced in Egypt, as horrible as it must have been, is not nearly as serious as the spiritual bondage sinners experience when their neck is under the boot of Satan. And yet the death of Jesus Christ frees us from that spiritual bondage. Finally, David is amazed by the fact that God made Israel his own people. As we saw, he loves this phrase, your people, to describe his fellow Jews. But for believers, we're not just God's people. We're his children. Of all the thousands of prayers that David prayed in his lifetime, he never, not one time, addressed God as Father. Not once. No one in the Old Testament ever prays to God as their Father. This privilege comes only with the spiritual adoption that God does through Jesus Christ and his finished work. When we're calling God our Father in prayer, we're doing something that David never could have done because he didn't have that kind of relationship with him. With all the blessings that God has given us through the new covenant in Christ, it only makes sense that being a worshiper is fundamental to who we are as believers. We have so much more to be thankful for, even than David. Do you ever just sit before God awestruck, speechless, in breathless wonder about God's love and grace to you in Jesus? That should be a fairly regular experience for the believer. Believers must always make the intensity of our love for God the main issue of our spiritual health. The rest of the stuff comes after that. 
For those hearing this message, and you're not a lover of God, and you're thinking, this is, he's not talking about me. Well, God has offered redemption to you through Jesus Christ. He can set you free from the spiritual blindness and bondage to sin that you may not even know you have, but you're now experiencing. He can give you a new heart. He can give you the heart of a worshiper and the joy of the Lord as your strength and a promise of hope for all eternity. He can make you an energetically grateful and worshipful child of God. That's why Jesus went to the cross to create a new race of people through his shed blood who would love and worship God forever. So if you haven't come to Christ, do that today. Humbly confess that like everybody else, you're a great sinner in need of a great Savior. Admit to God that by living your life the way you want to instead of the way that he wants you to, you've been spitting in God's face. By God's grace, turn from your independence from God and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Cry out to him to save you. He's going to give you something that even David could not have imagined. May God give us the grace to live as worshipers for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for the reminder in David's prayer to keep the main thing the main thing. Father, you've given us far more than David, and we're spending all of our time worrying about peccadilloes and things like this, and we're not focusing on the main question so often. God, I pray for myself, because I fall away often. I pray for all of my brothers and sisters that you would enable us to measure our spiritual health, not by how much we know or how many Bible verses we've memorized or all the religious jargon that we can spew out, but God, do we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are we worshipers first and foremost? God, drive that truth home to us. Father, for those who are here, if they don't know Jesus, I pray, God, that you would just enable them, that you would convict them. This is something I need to do. And God, only you can do that. And so we pray you would, for Jesus' sake, and in his name, amen.